Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we are turning our attention to Joe Biden's upcoming trip to Europe, which is his first overseas trip as president. Uh, Biden will attend the G7 in Cornwall in the UK on Friday before heading to Brussels for NATO and the uh, US-EU summits next week. And then, of course, he's off to Geneva to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, We've talked about these summits as really kind of serving as an important signal of the tone and the contours of relations uh, with our European partners. Um, And there's a lot of issues on the table. The United States is seeking deeper coordination with allies on partners on the three C's, which we've heard a lot about, COVID, China, and climate. There's also issues like Russia, uh, technology, trade, and regulatory issues. So a lot of questions ahead of the summit, questions like how Biden will address differences between the U.S. and the EU on things like the economy and other strategic priorities, Uh, important questions about what he's going to discuss with Vladimir Putin. Um, And so to address these and many, many more, we're really excited to welcome Admiral James Stavridis to the podcast today. Welcome, Admiral. Good to be with you both. All right. As always, I'm going to do a very quick uh, intro or bio. Um, uh, Admiral Stavridis uh, is a retired four-star U.S. Naval officer. He's currently an operating executive at the Carlisle Group and chair of the board of trustees at the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, He has previously served as the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University for five years. And he had um, previously, just as he stepped stepped out, a 37-year military career. Um, During that time, he led the NATO Alliance in Global Operations from 2009 to 2013 as Supreme Allied Commander, where he was responsible for Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, Syria, counter-piracy, cybersecurity. It's all there, um, and we're happy to dive into a lot of these issues Um, And before we get into maybe some of the particulars of the summit, um, Admiral, I wanted to maybe just ask a bigger, broader question. That is how you would characterize the state of the transatlantic relationship today. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of op-eds coming out and, you know, including some discussions with our European counterparts and colleagues that below the kind of glossy, rosy picture and the rah-rah, the United States and the transatlantic alliance is back, there are some concerns that are percolating under the surface. Um, you know, there's concerns that President Biden may be an anomaly, um, concerns um, about a lot of these divisive issues in the relationship over technology. Um, so there's a lot that's under there. And so I wonder if you kind of peel back some of the the surface, some of the layers that we're seeing ahead of the Mm -hmm. summit, you you know, how you would really characterize the state of the relationship going into these summits? Well, what a great question, a a wonderful place to kind of start the conversation. And before I dive in, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to be with two colleagues who have uh, been in this garden of the transatlantic world for so many years. And in particular, Jim Townsend and I traveled together very frequently when I was uh, the senior military assistant to Don Rumsfeld. And uh, I know both of you, the quality of your work, and thank you for having me on. So um, the state of the transatlantic alliance, well, we've been hearing a lot about infrastructure lately. So let's think of it like a bridge, the transatlantic bridge. It's still there. Uh, traffic is flowing across the bridge. I think it's creaking a little bit in the wind. Um, I think it also felt a little unoccupied over the last four years because of the Trump administration's, uh, let's face it, uh, not supremely, not to make a pun, friendly uh, attitude toward NATO. Um, So now the traffic is ramping up on this slightly creaky bridge. So I think it's a pretty good time, like we're doing here in the United States with infrastructure all over the country. Let's get under the bridge. Let's take a good hard look at the fundamentals there and see how they, uh, as Oprah would say, how does it feel? So let me take a swing at that and then we can dive in on any of it. But 
Um, you know, good news first, these are numbers not unknown to you, but just to review them. NATO now has 30 nations in it, 28 when I served as Supreme Allied Commander. And uh, with those 30 nations, about 55% of the world's gross domestic product, 3 million men and women under arms, almost all volunteers, 4 million in the reserves, 28,000 military aircraft, uh, 800 to 1,000 ocean-going capital warships. I could go on and on, you get the idea. A combined defense spending, roughly a trillion dollars a year. There has never been an alliance as wealthy, as capable, or frankly, as blooded as NATO coming out of Afghanistan. This is an alliance that has been in combat for the better part of two decades. So that's, if you will, the good news about the alliance. The bad news, there's still a sense of unequal burden sharing. We should probably talk about that. There is a sense that the Afghan mission uh, may not turn out the way we all hope it will. I think it's still got a one in three chance of landing and some semblance of order, but a two in three chance at this point that the wheels come off. That's going to be very disappointing to the Alliance in a number of different ways. And there are new challenges that are servicing that the Alliance hasn't really come to grips with. Cybersecurity, Russian activity in the Arctic, um, ongoing challenges in Syria on a long border, uh, concerns about Turkey's role in the Alliance. That's the part of the bridge I worry about. And Andre, as you said, it's kind of under the hood of the car to shift metaphors. I think now is a pretty good time to, uh, to really take a look at that bridge, uh, strengthen it where we need to. And uh, above all, I'll close with this, um, we need a new strategic concept. Uh, the strategic concept in place was written uh, when I was Supreme Allied Commander, so 2010-ish. Uh, it's really time to get that exercise underway. As you two both know, it is underway. Um, and I think that we need, to, uh, we need to make sure that that is a good outcome. Wonderful. That was a, a great opening. Um, and I know we're going to pick up on a lot of the strands that you just laid out there, including the strategic concept. But one of the things I want to talk about, too, is the China piece. And so we know going into the um, into the summits that the administration is really you know, laying out the three C's, as I said in the introduction, um, climate, COVID and China. China is one area where I know you've done a lot of work and thinking, including with your book, in which we will get to that also a, a little bit later in the podcast. But one of the, the interesting um, uh, dynamics of these summits, I feel like, is so for the United States, they've gone in all, you know, full on on China. It, they are laser-like focused on China, with Russia being a much more distant second but in Europe, I would say it's the reverse, that Russia really is the priority and China is a more distant second. And so how do you see the allies, including in these summits, kind of being able to thread that needle? Is there, is there a mismatch in priorities or how should this administration um, address that issue of two kind of adversaries that we prioritize differently? Um, well, let me start by just putting my hands up. I know not everyone is going to be able to see them, but they are drawing closer and closer together. Unfortunately, my hands do not represent the US and Europe. My hands represent Russia and China. Russia and China are drawing closer and closer together. We should be very mindful of that. Here are two enormous authoritarian regimes who have, by the way, always been authoritarian throughout thousands of years of their history. Uh, both of them um, are finding ways increasingly to cooperate and support each other. Diplomatics speak here. They are moving toward condominium. Um, they are not yet in a full-blown alliance. I would be surprised if that does not occur over the next 10 years, particularly as both President Xi and President Putin uh, seek to extend their time in office closer and closer together. And, you know, if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, they kind of complete each other in the sense that here you have Russia, huge level of natural resources, smallish population declining. 
Here you have China, massive population, certainly with demographic challenges to be sure, but a, the largest population in the world at the moment, they'll be overtaken by India in this decade, but a huge population and frankly, very few natural resources. In addition to being authoritarian states together, they're kind of geopolitically drawing closer together. And I'll, I'll finish up here in, in this cautionary note, and then I'll say what we should do about it. But the cautionary note is this is not just the North Pacific or East Asia. You know, I often talk to audiences about this and I'll show a picture of a Chinese destroyer and a Russian frigate operating together. Photograph was taken just a few months ago, not in the North Pacific where you would expect that, was taken in the Baltic Sea in the heart of Europe. They are operating together. They are globally deploying maritime forces together. That is a harbinger of where this will come. So what should the administration be doing? Here we do come to the US and China. I think we need to ring this bell. I think we need to make um, our greatest pool of partners in the world, and that would be the European Union, NATO. Um, certainly we have wonderful allies all around the world, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, um, many in Asia, many in Latin America, many in Africa, but our greatest single pool of partners, allies, friends is right there in Europe across that slightly creaky transatlantic bridge. So I think a salutary conversation to be having is the question you asked. Um, we ought to be saying to the Europeans, focus on China, but recognize in your concern for Russia, perfectly understandably, those two are drawing together. And therefore the pair of hands that we want drawing closer and closer together is not Russia and China, it's the United States and Europe. That is the answer to balancing not only China, but Russia. Can I add just one point that's worth mentioning? Um, Russia should be careful what it asks for in this relationship. Putin should be careful um, because at the end of the day, Russia, in my view, will end up as quite a junior partner in this relationship. And as I have said many times, China looks north at Siberia. Siberia is an enormous landmass, Russia to the east of the Ural Mountains. It's the size of the continental United States. It's got 20 million people living there in that entire landmass. It's empty, except it's not empty, it's full of oil, gas, timber, arable land, rare earths, diamonds, gold. China looks at that the way my dog looks at a ribeye steak. It looks really tasty. So uh, I don't know if you share this view, but I think Putin is a very clever tactician. He plays his relatively weak hand of cards quite well, uh, but strategically he's making, I think, an epic misstep here by turning his attention to China and not trying to integrate more fully with Europe. Thank you so much, Admiral. That was, uh, I, I love the bridge analogy and, and particularly the ribeye steak. I think both of those <laughs> really tell the story yeah. and I really appreciate those points. Let me ask you to put your Sakir hat back on. I know it's there in your closet somewhere as you take it off the shelf. And uh, if you were, Sakir, today, and you're going to be uh, giving uh, President Biden a quick brief before he walks into the summit, uh, and you'd want to give him a quick brief on the military aspects of the alliance. You know, they're going to talk about China. They're going to talk about the 2%. They're going to talk about a lot of the broader political and security issues there. But in terms of the, uh, the NATO military, as well as UCOM, uh, as, as you also are the, would be the commander of the European command there in Europe, what are your military issues that you would raise? There's some, been some very interesting things coming out of London in terms of how they're gonna restructure their forces for the future. France has done that too. The European Union that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, their military arm has, um, uh, and political arm as they've worked together have become, become players suddenly uh, in def defining some of the European military capability. So um, as, you, as you think about the military aspects of the alliance, what would be the top three that you would wanna make sure President Biden knows before he sits down at the summit? Well, I'm tempted to say the top three ought to be cyber, cyber, and cyber. 
And what I mean by that is um, I, I think we need to have COVID in our three C's. Frankly, I think COVID is going to end up in the rear view mirror in the not too distant future. And that third C really should be cyber. So China, cyber, climate, kind of in that order, in my view. So I would say to the president, um, let's get cyber into the conversation. You can do this, Mr. President, at this level. Um, you don't have to be an expert in it, just hit the bell and make the point to your colleagues, your peer set, that we need to put emphasis on cyber in terms of the alliance. I think the second point I would make is that because of your point, Jim, that the European Union and its military in the post-Brexit environment um, is gonna do nothing but continue to uh, feel its muscle. And as a result, Mr. President, we need to really put our arms around NATO right now. That doesn't mean that we should not address the 2% issue, that's certainly germane, but this is not the time to be uh, in any way pushing NATO away. We really need to gather NATO toward us. And we ought to be talking to Boris Johnson and our British colleagues about how we can conduct the kind of military exercises that we uh, will strengthen that transatlantic bridge uh, militarily. And then third and finally, and I think this is uh, well-suited at a presidential level, it, it's simply the idea of technology and how we need to ensure that our technologies can work together, that our tech companies can work together. This is different than cyber qua cyber. This is the whole broad range of uh, technologies, R&D, um, making sure that we work together. And, and frankly, there's no better set of scientific R&D actors other than the United States and China, of course, off stage. But think of that power of bringing US and Europe together, working on tech issues together. And there are a number of initiatives that I think will facilitate that. Those would probably be my big three for the president, Jim. So I want to, um, we've got a couple more questions, but I do want to let um, our audience kind of participants know that we'll be taking questions here very shortly. And so if you are interested in raising, in asking a question, please just use the raise hand button on Zoom and we'll unmute you when it's your turn to kind of step into the podcast and ask your question. So please be thinking about questions now. Um, just to pick up a little bit on, on some of the, you know, if China um, is, is the primary focus in cyber and technology, the EU is also going to have to be an important player. And obviously, President Biden, I think it's the, I've heard the first time since 2014 that the U.S. president is joining an EU summit. So that's a big deal. Yes, um, what, you know, you think, what, what, what do you hope to see between NATO and the EU um, what do you think that relationship needs to look like, how it needs to adapt and evolve? Because obviously it's the European Union that has a lot of key tools at its disposal in this competition with China. Kind of how, how do you think about that NATO-EU relationship and where do, you hope it, where, where do you hope it goes? Well, I would start with Ursula von der Leyen, who is the, uh, the head of the European Union, if you will, the president of the commission. And I know her very well from her days as the German Minister of Defense toward the end of my time as Supreme Allied Commander. And then she and I have remained in, in good contact throughout my time as Dean at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Met with her uh, many times in Munich at the Munich Security Conference in my post-SACUR life uh, and continue to be in touch with her. She is uh, supremely competent in my view. Um, very gifted uh, in so many different ways. She's a physician. She is someone, as I mentioned, who is uh, grounded in defense, um, helped steer the German military through some pretty troubled patches. Um, start with her. She is a strong leader and she's someone President Biden, I think will resonate well, uh, knowing both of their worldviews. Um, secondly, work on NATO and the EU, where can they work together militarily? Um, we have a pretty good history of doing this in, for example, the Balkans, uh, in counter piracy missions. I'll tell you one that I would put on the agenda is how could the EU and NATO 
cooperate in cyber. And then uh, thirdly, the European Union, of course, is, is going to be not only interested in the military and the security aspect of things, but very interested in uh, trade and economics and tech. And here, I would take a page out of a, a failed effort in the Pacific, which was the failure to conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This was going to be the largest free trade association in the history of the world. United States is a leader of it. Uh, the Trump administration decided to walk away from it. I think that was a mistake. Um, it, it's still possible, by the way, that we could rejoin the remnants of that, and that's a different conversation. But in the context of the Atlantic Bridge and Europe, I think the idea of putting some energy back into what has been called TTIP, the Transatlantic uh, Initiative for Trade, effectively the uh, transatlantic version of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, putting some energy into that. And in particular, um, you've seen some writing about a technology and trade council. I think you're gonna see that as a deliverable coming out of that summit. That's a very good place to be because again, the Uber theme we're talking about here is how do we get Europe and the United States drawing closer together to counterbalance what we see in terms of China and Russia. So there would be three quick hits that I think uh, will probably emerge from that EU summit. And by the way, I, I agree with you completely. It's a big deal that the president is going to that summit. It is a powerful, smart signal. One quick follow on to that. And then I, I wanna ask before we go to audience questions too about the strategic concept, but um, you, know, you talk about the NATO-EU co cooperation on things like technology. How concerned are you about kind of redundancy across those two? So, for example, my understanding is at the NATO summit, they're going to talk about new technologies, disruptive technologies, possibly announce a defense accelerator, possibly put forward an innovation fund. And, you know, I guess my worry is a little bit that now you, you know, with the UK out that they're kind of pursuing some of this technology, um, it, trying to be leaders on their own. The NATO wants to be a player. The EU wants to be a player. The United States is pursuing a lot of its initiatives and that you're kind of getting a fragmentation of efforts. Yeah, this is, of course, the Henry Kissinger line, you know, how do I call Europe uh, you know, Europe's 30 plus nations. Um, there is no real central phone number other than the European Union, which unfortunately perhaps does not include um, our friends in Great Britain and a number of other nations. And, you know, we've all seen these uh, complex diagrams of who's in NATO, who's in the EU, who's in the trade agreement, who's in the Eurozone, who's not, et cetera. Um, the short answer to the question is that, in my view, it does not hurt to have these conversations going on in two different venues. Um, over time, they tend to fuse back together again. That's better than um, kind of picking up one thread on the, if you will, the NATO side and another thread on the EU side and watching the horses end up going off in different directions. I'd rather have both sides uh, having those conversations together, even if there's some variance and some complexity pulling it apart. So that's where I would uh, park that. And I think that's how the administration is going into this. If you look at the rhythm of the president's trip, it's kind of designed to put all this together. And then what comes at the very end, he goes to meet his friend, the killer Vladimir Putin. All right, one more question before we turn it over if audience has questions and we obviously encourage everyone to, to jump in and ask yours, um, but you mentioned the strategic concept. Um, and I wanna know kind of how concerned you are that it could unearth or reveal more fissures within the Alliance. And we've talked about, you know, that there are obvious differences, um, differences in priorities, you know, is it Russia, China or China, Russia? There's differences obviously within Europe on the Russia issue. Um, so, and then, and then, and especially, and I guess this was what I really wanted to highlight some problematic allies, um, one being Turkey. And, you know, we saw ahead of the, uh, or we saw in the NATO context, 
uh, Turkey watering down the language about cutting off NATO uh, cooperation with Belarus after the downing of the airline may perhaps giving Russia a veto inside the NATO context. So there are obviously a lot of these fissures. I know they've always been there, um, but the strategic concept is an important time. And I wonder kind of how you see that process playing out and how um, the alliance might be able to, to manage and mitigate some of those fissures. Um, am I worried? Yes. Let's go back to the bridge analogy. If you hear a bridge creaking a little bit, um, what you should be doing is getting under the bridge and seeing what kind of state it's really in. The worst thing you can do if you hear a bridge kind of creaking and swaying a little bit in the wind is to say, I really don't want to do that bridge inspection because what if I saw some uh, fissures in the bridge? Um, so my view is, I think, pretty straightforward. Let's have the debate. And I think that the strategic concept is as good a mechanism, as good an instrument as I think you could come up with. And again, having lived through the 2010 document, that effort being led by Madeleine Albright, um, who was superb in that role, if you put the right people around the table uh, and you have the debate and you do it in direct ways, yeah, we're going to uncover some fissures and some concerns, um, but better we should uncover those uh, and then move to repair, replace, restructure, uh, strengthen, rebuild, build back better, not to coin a phrase. Um, I'd much rather be doing that than see the bridge collapse because we just didn't want to take a hard look at it. Well, I, I agree about that, uh, about not wanting to uh, have someone be afraid of looking under the bridge because uh, they don't want to see the fissures. They don't, want, they don't want to go back and put money in a budget to try to get the bridge fixed. So they just ignore it. But let me ask you, as we look at this, um, this instrument and uh, this tool, if you will, uh, that I think you're absolutely right. The strategic concept uh, will help us a great deal with this bridge and making repairs. If you're the chief engineer and you're sitting down there at the at the NAC table, two in the morning, uh, going through the hours and hours of negotiating the strategic concept. Do you have a couple of things that you particularly want to see put in there? Are there some, uh, not just in terms of, you know, China and, uh, and we'll have to reshape what we say about Russia, but, but other practical things that you think NATO needs to have in its strategic concept? Of course. And um, I think most NATO observers will have their shopping lists, and I'm sure you and Andrea both have one as well. Um, again, top of my list is cyber and cybersecurity. I think here the greatest level of threat is mismatched by our level of preparation. In other words, we look at a wide range of threats in NATO. Most of them, the level of threat is here. My hand is moving up. It's we're pretty well prepared across most of the things I'm concerned about. In cyber, not so much. Here we see the greatest mismatch. So I would start by taking the NATO Cyber Security Defense Center in Tallinn. Let's try and operationalize it, build it out, make it look like the NATO Special Operations Headquarters. So that would be number one on my list. Kind of attached to that would be space and thinking about how can the Alliance become an actor in space. I, I ticked off, as I often do, the list of all the assets, you know, and 50 AWACS, and you can go on and on. Where's the NATO space program? And what could that look like, particularly in this era of smaller, cheaper, more launchable private sector kinds of efforts in space? Number three on my list would be the Arctic. Um, you and Andrea have done some wonderful work looking at uh, programmatics up there, looking at Russian expansion. Uh, believe me, China is very interested in the Arctic and will continue to be so. And so again, that theme I mentioned earlier, two nations drawing closer and closer. And by the way, back to space for just one second, what was announced three weeks ago? Russia and China having a joint manned mission to the moon to establish a permanent research facility on the moon. So again, Russia and China on the move in space, in the Arctic, in cyber, you get the pattern. I'd say those three uh, would be way up on my list. 
Um, and then, you know, there's a whole rest of the shopping list we could kind of talk through. But I think this will be a little like, you know, placing bets in a casino. Um, different people will want to put money on different uh, outcomes on the roulette wheel. Those would be the three that I would say might be under bet, but where we need to put more emphasis. I like that image uh, of the knack table of a big roulette wheel and all of us <laughs> sitting there putting bets down, which is actually what happens, although so, so much for money. <laughs> yeah, except as you know, unfortunately, anybody around the table can reach out, grab the wheel and just stop it. That'd be a pretty <laughs> dumb way to run Vegas, but that's but, what we have to work with. Yep. Uh, and, and like Vegas, the house always wins. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me ask you one more question that I think we're going to go on to the audience. Uh, uh, but, and, but, you know, as you look at the European Union, um, we've talked about it now in various guises and various ways. And the EU is beginning to, uh, to put money now, um, R&D money, uh, beginning to uh, talk about uh, ways to really uh, make the EU military capability something pretty solid. Uh, the French particularly are leading those discussions and we all know about the, you know, the, the need to avoid duplication, this type of thing. If you were talking to uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who I agree with all of that you've said, I, she's a very good friend of the United States and I enjoyed uh, working with her as well. If you were to, to tell her what you wish the EU military would focus on, because mm. uh, one thing you mentioned was space. And, you know, both the Paris and London are, are establishing their own national space capability. Of course, we have the U.S. And I was thinking it's too bad we can't put them all together because it's, it's so expensive to do independently. But if you were sitting down with Ursula, what would you say to the EU um, if you all could focus on these two or three military aspects that will take the, um, the pressure off of NATO. And this is something that can really help fill the NATO gap. It's something that'll help fill uh, gaps that nations have. It could also be a more efficient way for uh, the European nations to improve their military capability. If you had them focused militarily on one or two things, what would it be? Um, one is, uh, I don't wanna say a niche capability, but it's one that uh, the United States certainly is not going to focus on, and it's diesel submarine operations. And maybe that's a bit navalist or a bit niche for some on this call, but I assure you if we, and God forbid we should, if we go to the big dance with China, as we talk about in, the, in my novel, 2034, a novel of the next world war, which postulates a war between the US and China. Um, if we go there, diesel submarines may be part of what we need uh, to counter and operate against uh, Chinese and Russian diesel submarine technology, which is uh, quite good. So uh, diesels would be one uh, very specific thing. Secondly, I would say to Ursula, I want you to cooperate with us on what I have called the new strategic triad. This is not, uh, ballistic missiles from submarines and uh, in-ground ballistic missiles and long-range bombers, we got that covered. Um, what we would like you to focus on and shape our efforts together is, again, what I've called the new strategic triad, which is cyber, unmanned vehicles to include space, and special forces, elite teams, performance-enhanced humans. Um, I think that would be a, an excellent place for cooperation and look no further than the NATO Special Operations Headquarters for a bit of a model there. Um, and then thirdly, I would say to her, <clears throat> this is less about what you can do that we're not gonna do, but a place where I think our efforts could come together would be, and this is a stretch literally for our colleagues, and that is the South China Sea. And, and of course, um, a couple of weeks ago, my, my heart beat faster as I saw the Queen Elizabeth, the aircraft carrier, uh, sail out to sea, 65,000 tons, a Joint Strike Fighter air wing, uh, two British destroyers, two British frigates, a British nuclear submarine, two British auxiliaries. Hey, there's another name for that. It's a carrier strike group. And by the way, they're nice enough to allow an American DDG to kind of come along with them, a reversal of what we've done in the past where an allied ship comes with one of our carrier strike groups. Um, 
I think where are they going? Indian Ocean to get to the South China Sea. Um, the Brits obviously can do this. They're about to show it. The French could do this. They could deploy a carrier strike group. Um, you could then look at other Europeans bolting on. You know, we've had a tradition in NATO of having standing maritime groups, right? What are they? They're frigates and destroyers operating in the Med, sometimes in the Baltic. They're also minesweepers, important. What I'd like to see is a standing maritime carrier strike group. How do we put that idea together? And, um, you know, that would be the third of my, my three wishes, like, like Aladdin uh, talking to Ursula. Boy, that's a, I love the, every, every one of those, a, a, just excellent. And I think the standing naval strike force is a great idea. And I think it's something doable over time. It really is. And I would give Ursula a copy of your book too, by the way. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So I have a question. Um, we're going to take a couple from the audience and I'm also keen. I want to ask you a question um, about arms control as we're kind of touching on a number of these issues. And I, given that that's going to be a focus, I think, coming out of the Putin Biden meeting. But I have a question from James Colligan, who is associate at Vegan Global Strategies, who's asking um, to use the transatlantic bridge metaphor, which is terrific, he says, how can the bridge ensure that there is a good that there is good flow if there is a fragmentation of tech regulation? So, for example, an EU MEP recently said that the Digital Markets Act should target U.S. tech companies, but not European ones, to please President Biden. Is the trade is the Trade Tech Council a place to resolve this fragmentation? Um, I, I think it is. The Trade Tech Council, which I mentioned earlier, um, is uh, broad but I think it would be the logical place to park this, I think significant and dangerous disagreement between the US and Europe over tech companies specifically. Um, we ought to be very careful about uh, measures on both sides of the Atlantic that, that target one set or the other set of tech companies because down that path lies not a trade war, but a tech war. And, Boy, do we want to avoid that. Um, as, as many will know, I've been part of an effort called America's Edge, which looks at the edge that America has as a result of our tech capabilities. And I think it's important that neither US nor Europe go after the other, because who's the winner in that scenario? Ding, 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 China, Huawei. Um, the companies that are on the blacklist correctly put together by the Biden team for their um, far too close relationships with the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party. They would be the winners. So yes, I think the Trade Tech Council is a fine idea. As I mentioned earlier, I think that'll be a deliverable coming out of the US-EU summit that's about to unfold. And it's part of the most important geostrategic muscle movement of this part of the 21st century is going to be US and Europe drawing close together in the face of Russian and Chinese condominium. We need to uh, make sure tech is a part of the plank, if you will, in that bridge. Yeah, I, I very much agree. And I am also optimistic that that technology council will be something that, that comes out of this next. Um, out Can of I this mention an analog to that? Because we've touched on the Arctic several times. There is a functioning and I think fairly good international organization called the Arctic Council, which has the nations who have, if you will, a real estate inside the Arctic Circle as members. So it happens to be five NATO countries, United States, Canada, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark by virtue of Greenland, Russia on the other side of the Arctic front porch, and then Sweden and Finland, both of whom have archipelagos that are inside the Arctic Circle. In addition, it brings in as observers, other nations. It's a pretty good forum. We used it a couple of times when I was Supreme Allied Commander to get the heads of military from those nations together to discuss confidence building measures. How do we avoid turning the Arctic into a zone of conflict? I think that Arctic Council is a pretty good model for this idea of a tech and trade council between the US and Europe, worth mentioning. 
Yeah, no, fantastic point. Um, so I do, I want to come back to my question on arms control. Um, I, you know, I do think that that will be one of the key, you know, quote unquote, deliverables coming out of the Putin-Biden meeting, some sort of agreement to embark on arms control and strategic stability dialogue. And I wonder kind of where, how, how you think, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of open questions still about how that kind of dialogue and discussion would go. And there's different schools of thought, some people thinking, we should start big and looking for some sort of official kind of arms control treaty. Um, others saying, no, 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 that's, you know, too politically untenable. We're not going to get anything through Congress. Russia doesn't comply with the agreements that it signs anyway. So we should start maybe with some smaller steps, um, confidence building measures, thinking about things more under the strategic stability umbrella, like cyber, like space. And so I guess, you know, putting back on your kind of the sock your hat, if you, you know, were, were putting in your opinion about where you would like to see those debates and discussions with uh, Moscow go, kind of what would be your advice? I'm more in the latter camp of the two you describe. And my theory here is something beats nothing. And I think where we desperately want to avoid ending up is with nothing. Um, in other words, just an expired uh, agreement and both nations, therefore, feeling this kind of inexorable pressure to increase weapons. Boy, is that a bad outcome. So I would say it's kind of like mountain climbing. You, you don't want to let go of what you have, even if it's imperfect, to try and reach for something way above. Um, you want to hold on to that first handhold while you try and stretch up. So um, I'd say Let's hold on to what we have. And if we need to extend the current agreement again, we should do that without question. Um, secondly, yes, uh, the kind of confidence building measures uh, you mentioned, I think are roughly the right ones. I would say um, you mentioned cyber and space. I would add uh, maritime incidents at sea. Jim and I are old enough to remember uh, in the good old days of the Cold War, there was something called the Ink Sea Agreements, um, and they kind of stumble along today. We don't have anything like that in place, by the way, with China, which would be a very good thing to do if we want to avoid the kind of incident uh, in the South China Sea that opens 2034 and leads to a war. Um, same thing with Russia. Um, so I think those are the right confidence-building measures. And then the third thing I would mention, Andrea, is knowing that it's going to be like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, we've got to try and get China involved in this. Um, you know, if China is, and I think they are firmly committed to becoming a global, if not the global superpower by 2035 to 2050 in that range, they have got to come into arms control. And I'm going to include cyber in that because cyber offensive weapons are starting to approach the level of societal impact that nuclear weapons can have. So there would be three quickies um, that I think outline how I would approach this. The bottom line is um, build from the ground up and start with what we have already. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, Jim, so as, as many of our Brussels sprouts listeners know, we save a special question for our most distinguished and experienced guests for the end. And so Jim, I'm going to turn it over, over to you. Well, thank you so much. And I, I just, uh, I, I, I love this question. It's so helpful, uh, to so many people in so many different ways. And the question really allows, uh, guests like you, Admiral Stravitas, who have, had such a long and distinguished career and so many experiences through their working life and their personal life, it gives them an opportunity to reflect back on that. Um, and you know, you've written books on this, so this is certainly something that you've reflected quite a bit about, being a scholar sailor as you are. Uh, and uh, and so for so my question for you is, as you've now you've you've moved on to a second career um, that we all are very much aware of, both at Tufts as well as uh, the Carlisle Group, um, you're still writing and speaking. But you know, um, when you began in the Navy as an ensign, uh, and you had in your mind uh, certain assumptions and expectations and 
uh, you moved into the, the naval world and you dealt with geopolitics as you become became more of a senior officer, worked with Donald Rumsfeld in the Pentagon after 9-11, which was a tough, tough place. Uh, I think both of us have lost years off of our life from that and then moved on to, to Sackyer. And, and now now you're you've closed that book and you've opened a new one. What have you what have you what has surprised you? What what assumptions did you start off with that that just never played out, and and instead you've emerged with some surprises and some some understanding that you you didn't expect to have as you as you sit there and you look back, what uh, what kind of runs through your mind? What do you reflect about? Well, first, and you're nice to mention, um, you know, the three lives of Jim Stavridis, you know, long misspent youth in the Navy, thirty seven years. Um, second act, Dean of the Fletcher School, so higher education, which is, uh, believe me, its own universe. And there were times when I felt, to quote Robert Heinlein, to be a stranger in a strange land. Uh, but at the end of the day, five years there was a powerful experience for me. That was kind of act two. Act three is um, global business, economics, finance, uh, the Carlyle Group, the largest private equity company in the world measured by our portfolio companies and their size. So three very distinct acts. So if, if I could reframe the question and tell you, looking back at those three different uh, periods of my life, I'll, I'll tell you uh, four things that worked in, in all of those venues. And they may or may not surprise you. Um, the first is the importance of reading, of reading, of learning. You know, so often, I just gave the commencement speech at uh, Swanee, the University of the South. I've done close to a dozen different uh, commencement speeches over the years, and I always enjoy those. But what I always say, no matter what I'm talking about, I'll mention to the graduates, another important aspect of this day is that for the first time in your life, you own your education. Until now, others have been telling you what to read, what to think about, how to ask questions, evaluating your essays. Today, you own your education. You will become the sum of what you continue to read. And you know this runs the gamut from reading um, powerful works of fiction and I'll give you an example, a book that everybody reads when they're 14 years old, pull out To Kill a Mockingbird and read that book again. Do you think that's kind of about America in 2021? It's a book about a flawed judicial system, racial injustice, a young woman's coming of age, the cost of integrity. Those are big questions. Go back and read that masterpiece. And I could go on for an hour about books and reading and the importance of that. That has been a constant threat in my life. Second, this one may or may not surprise you, is physical fitness. And here I mean just, um, you know, no one has to go out and be a, a world-class athlete, but um, the degree to which you carve out time to get on the elliptical, to go for a walk, to go for a jog, to pick up a tennis racket, um, to ensure your physical fitness. And part of that is dealing with medical issues aggressively. Um, physical fitness, I think, is something that has helped me every step of the way in my life. Um, thirdly, I hope this doesn't surprise you, but I'm a big believer in never lose your temper. Never lose your temper. And here, I'll be very honest, I've been around a lot of leaders senior to me who were explosive. And you know that in my view, never helps. All it does is create more white noise in the mind of someone who in 99% of the cases is trying to do a good job. And we always say in the military, the job of any officer is to bring order out of chaos, to bring order out of chaos. And to do that, blowing up, losing your temper, counterproductive. And I, I, I don't say that in the context of, although I believe in it, that it's a good Christian thing or a good Buddhist thing to, to be kind to others. 
Um, yeah, it, it has a moral component to it, but I'm talking about it as a pragmatic piece of advice. Don't lose your temper. It diminishes your performance and it will certainly diminish the performance of others around you. And, you know, that's hard. I recognize that. And we all struggle with that. And we all have personalities and you have to be able to control your temper. And then fourth and finally, um, it's the value of your peer network, the peers around you. I, I think most of us figure out as we go along in life that you got to do a good job for your boss. You got to look up the chain of command, so to speak, and do a good job and impress your boss. And most of us figure out that as leaders, we have to take care of those who are following us. We have to be servant leaders. I think both those thoughts are, are actually quite commonplace and they, they should be because they're the right thoughts. Where we are underweight, and I have been underweight over the years and have learned as I've come along, is the value of that peer network. Nobody knows you in all of your, your glory and your failures like your peers do. And no one will be as honest with you as your peers if you cultivate them and if you stay in touch with them. And if you ask them, how am I doing? How does this look? Is this a good article? Should I not have sent that tweet? Your peers can be very valuable resources. And I, again, I'll, I think we're generally speaking quite underweight in thinking about and cultivating our peer networks. Um, of all those of the four, for me, the most important one is, is the temper issue. It is uh, like Thomas Aquinas said, be kind to all you meet for you know not what burden they carry. Be kind to all you meet for you know not what burden they carry. That's a pretty good line to have in your mind. It'll help you stay calm in hard situations. And again, the pragmatism of that is what's important. So Jim, there's uh, four quick thoughts for you. Boy, those are just golden words. I, I'm speechless. <laughs> Andrea, over to you. That is just, that's just as wonderful. Thank you so much. On behalf of all of us who have heard that today and will hear it into the future as our podcast is passed around. So thank you. That was really wonderful. And we appreciate you sharing that life advice. And, you know, all of us who have admired your career um, are listening very carefully to what you have to say. So we appreciate that. And also just all of the insights and the fa fabulous discussion that we had on the podcast today. Thanks for taking the time to join us. And we hope that we get to have you back um, sometime soon.